Now, here's Jack Riccardi. It's a really snazzy uh, introduction, Dennis. I got to say, you get the new music there yeah. for the traffic and weather. You got the fifty-five KTSA jingle. Yeah, I don't feel I don't feel worthy of all that setup. That was a big setup. Yeah, you know, should be something cooler happening now. Yeah. What, so uh, what do you got planned? <laughs> but there isn't. <laughs> if that's what you were hoping for, I'll let you in on something right now. It's just me. All that in right. the same old Jack. That's right. Same old Jack. They haven't, they haven't found a new version of him yet. Not that they're not working on it. Uh, KTSA Newstime 407. Welcome to Wednesday in the late afternoon. You know, um, I was thinking about this today. When you, when you have little kids, you tell them a bedtime story or you read them a bedtime story, often because they're afraid of going to bed, right? Or they're afraid of the dark or they're afraid of you leaving the room. So you give them something to take their mind off the, the nighttime anxieties right and i feel like the um i feel kind of like what may be happening right now and maybe this is a stretch is that elon musk is like the bedtime story that is being told to people who are afraid so you are afraid mark penn the pollster who worked for bill and hillary clinton wrote a piece in the new york times that was entitled american voters haven't been afraid like this in a long time and he says um right now uh, we are seeing sort of the greatest hits of the last several decades. He says, right now, all these problems are hitting at once. We have the nuclear anxieties of the 50s and 60s with Putin, right? The inflation of the 70s, the crime wave of the 80s and 90s, the tensions over illegal immigration in the 2000s. Never been so much all at once hitting the American people. Now he wrote this in sympathy with President Biden. Poor President Biden has to has to be on the receiving end of all this. But I'm thinking more of you. These are all the things that you hear about every day in the news, on the news, in the on the radio, on your phone. And you need to be distracted. You need to be calmed. So we're going to give you somebody, something else to worry about. We're going to give you someone else to worry about. We're going to give you a boogeyman story. And his name is Elon Musk. And I, I want to ask this question sincerely, and don't feel you have to answer this at all, but certainly you don't have to answer it if you don't have any anxiety about this guy and Twitter. But I, I want to know, I, I would like to ask seriously, sincerely, if you are afraid or you feel anxious about Elon Musk acquiring Twitter, I'm, I'm asking sincerely, I would like to understand why. Because he's not an unknown quantity. I mean, you know, most people in this country have at one time or another, and maybe all the time, used things like PayPal and Venmo, which he had a hand in developing. He uh, founded a clean sheet car company that is the first of its kind in decades. We haven't had an actual new American car company in decades. Tesla comes along, and it's one of those brands that has more brand loyalty than ownership, meaning there's, there's X number of people that have a Tesla, but then there's like Y number of people who think it's really cool and admire it and want to have one and wish they had one and... It, 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 that's quite a thing to develop in a very short amount of time. By the way, I think there's a lot of Venn diagram overlap 
in that a lot of the people who are afraid of him owning Twitter are not afraid of owning his car. And that's weird to me. I want to understand that. You're afraid of him, but you're riding around in his wheels. And you're giving him your money, or not him directly, but you're, you're using his technology. And he's pretty much privatized the American space program, SpaceX. Now, if ever there was a moment to know who is this guy, what really makes him tick, what's his real, what's his character, it seems to me it would have been when he was, when he was starting to take over the space program. That's, that's something you need to know. I mean, it's like a James Bond plot, right? Some mysterious, shadowy billionaire controls space. But I didn't hear anybody worried about that. I didn't hear anybody, I didn't see anybody wringing their hands over any of that. So the electric car, the space program, PayPal, I'm, I'm just trying to understand, can you tell me what you're afraid of? So I'm sincere, I will, I'm, and I'll listen, and I won't argue with you. Now, let me ask you another question, and this is a hard one. Are you afraid of Elon Musk controlling or acquiring Twitter because someone told you you should be? Think about that before you answer. Or did you come by that fear naturally? Because I think, as I watch this incredible around-the-clock, you know, meltdown, I really think a lot of people who say they're worried have been told to be worried. And it's easy to slip into that without stopping to consider, well, why am I... Why am I worried? I've known about this guy for years. He's been a presence in our economy, in our society, in our culture. If we really didn't know enough about him to trust him, we should have probably stopped him from, I don't know, (laughs) going to the International Space Station. So I want you, if you would like to, to tell me what, you may think, oh, God, I'm not calling that guy. I'm not going to get on that show because I've just heard the last two days everybody mock and ridicule muskophobia the host called it muskageddon but i will i will listen if you want to tell me what you're afraid of 210-599-5555 now there's a uh, story today in the news about american airlines and a passenger who had an issue with american airlines the passenger is a is a um club dj named dj soda It's okay if you've never heard of DJ Soda. But DJ Soda is tweeting about how she got kicked off American Airlines for wearing FU sweatpants. The sweatpants are covered with the words FU. And it's actually spelled out. I'm not going to say it. So it said it all over her pants and... um, they said uh, they told her if she wanted to board the plane, she'd have to take those off and change, and it delayed the flight, and it embarrassed her, and she's angry, and she's never going to fly American Airlines again and all that. And I was reading this, and I was thinking, you know, um, American Airlines basically was doing content moderation there, weren't they? Isn't that what they were doing? They were moderating the content on their airline. It's funny how many people don't have any problem with content moderation until their content gets moderated. But as you listen to people react to the Twitter story, it, it seems it's you know, like I said, I want to be I want to be open if you have a sincere, heartfelt 
concern. But it just seems like people have reached for the crazy button. You know, there's this whole school of thought that because he grew up in South Africa, he's not to be trusted. And this is from people that would have said during the Bush administration, we mustn't ever, ever profile people for their race or ethnicity or nationality or national origin. But because this guy was born in South Africa, that defines him. He's a, he's a, uh, a white supremacist. And there's a certain racial piece to this that I'm not getting. I, I, over the last few days, I've had people tell me that there are no blacks on Twitter. I, I know that's not true. Why would you say that? The Twitter is only for white, straight people. I'm positive I know gay people on Twitter. And then I'm, I'm told that this is part of um, a new wave of Nazism in America, that, that this guy who has promised to make Twitter open to all kinds of speech, this guy who has said it is inappropriate, for Twitter to to block and 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 censor and deplatform various opinions, that that is the Nazification of Twitter. You know, I'm getting a little tired of people throwing the Nazi word around. You're using that word in front of Americans whose fathers and grandfathers actually fought the damn Nazis. Do you have any idea how offensive it is when you call us Nazis? Or you call something Nazis, and we have in our own heritage, in our own family history, people that fought, and in some cases died, fighting the actual Nazis. You know not only how ignorant you sound, but how absolutely out of your mind you sound. They don't seem to understand. The Nazis were the ones that didn't want free speech. The Nazis were the ultimate content moderators. Can you get it? Do you get it? They, they were not about a marketplace of free speech. They were not about a public square, except to go into it and round people up from it. You, you actually literally could not have found a worse analogy. You, you have gone as far in the wrong direction as you can possibly go. You're going to meet yourself coming the other way. But calling us Nazis, calling... Freedom-loving Americans, free speech-exercising Americans, Nazis, when they are in fact the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of people who actually beat the Nazis, cut it out now. So, I mean, we've had the, we've had the last two days to kind of vent our spleens. Why is it we, why is it we vent our spleens, I wonder? Why not, why don't we vent our pancreases or? Our livers. Anyway, uh, we vented our spleens about, uh, oh, this, the people are going crazy over this, uh, Elon Musk Twitter story. But I, 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 I want to give the opportunity, if there is anyone out there listening, and I talked about this on the just a minute video too, if you really are anxious about this, could you explain, and I promise I won't argue with you, why? Maybe, maybe we'll learn something. Maybe you thought of something none of us have thought of. But I, I, I suspect, and again, I'm going to keep an open mind, that a lot of the reaction against this 
is kind of a follow the leader lemmings reaction. You're being told this is very scary. And, you know, if you hear the same thing over and over and over again, you start to believe it. And that's the principle behind advertising, right? And I just, I, I think my attitude about what he's going to do with Twitter is I want to wait and see. I don't, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have a, 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 a scenario. I don't like the people that were running it and the way they were running it. So I'm curious to see if it gets better. I hope it does. It sounds like it might, but I don't know. He is saying the right things, but we've heard people say the right things and then do something else before. He's a little hard to pin down because he's not overtly ideological. He's more of a, of a problem solver or pragmatist. He has a track record of innovating and creating products and brands that people love. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of mystified by the love of Tesla. I have to be honest. I'm, I'm not anti-electric car, but people who are not car buffs rave about and salivate over Teslas. And to me, as a car buff, they're kind of ugly. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you. If you have your Tesla, you love your Tesla. I don't think they're beautiful cars, but people love them. He's, he, he created in a very short amount of time, uh, an iconic, uh, sort of sought after or envied brand. So he's, the guy's got skills. Let's see what he does. What are you afraid of? 210 599 5555. Have you already had COVID 19? I'm not asking to be nosy, but there's an interesting study out today. This is from the CDC. It says that about 60% of us, this is serological data. So you're looking at, uh, people's blood samples. They, they looked at tens of thousands across the country. They believe that about 60% of us have already had coronavirus. And here's something interesting in the CDC numbers. 75% of children have already had coronavirus. And one of the underlying things they reported, this team from the CDC, is they did not expect the number to be that high. And it wasn't that high until suddenly... In December, January, February, the Omicron variant took the antibody number, meaning the, the number of people, the percentage of people that already had it, from about 36% to over 63% in adults. Adults 18 to 49, 63%, 50% in those over the age of 50. A third in those over 65 already have had it. Have you already had it? The reason this is important is because this virus has gone ahead and done something that all the experts seemed, I shouldn't say all, many of the experts seemed dead set against. It's ripped through the population. Remember, we were going to stop it. We were going to defeat it. We were going to flatten it. We just needed to stay home a little longer. We just needed to keep your business closed a little longer. We just needed to keep your kids' school closed a little longer. But as it turns out, this thing had to go through and has to go through our population for us to move on. Now, they're not saying, and I'm not saying, that because you've had it, you'll never get it again. But 
it, it's just another brick in the wall of evidence that says you don't respond to a virus by closing people off, shutting healthy people down, isolating and quarantining healthy people. You just, that doesn't work. It did not work. Now, you probably heard in the news yesterday that the vice president tested positive for COVID-19. There's something interesting going on with this. I don't know what to make of it. I'm just going to pass it along to you. I'm not going to play a doctor on the radio. But Kamala Harris, in uh, testing positive for COVID-19, her office said that she's asymptomatic and um, quadruple vaccinated. She's had both boosters. And then they said something interesting. They said she is receiving Paxlovid, which is a brand-new antiviral oral drug from Pfizer. It got emergency authorization at the end of last year. And in the research that's been published on Paxlovid, it seems effective for people that are symptomatic and at high risk. But wait a minute. The vice president's office says she's asymptomatic. And we've never heard that Kamala Harris, who's in her late 50s, uh, was in any risk groups. Even the WHO says that Paxlovid should be for people that are at high risk of hospitalization. The unvaccinated, the elderly, people that are immunocompromised. Harris is not elderly. She's not unvaccinated, according to her own people. And we have never been told that she's in in any risk groups. So there could be two things happening here that I can think of. One, she's a VIP, and they're just throwing the kitchen sink at it, and that would be understandable. The other possibility is that maybe she is actually sicker than they're letting on. And I hope she's not. I'm not saying that, you know, in any kind of gleeful way. But it it is a little odd. Even Dr. McCary, who we have on this show frequently from Johns Hopkins, uh, was quoted in one article I read today as saying he was puzzled to hear that uh, surprise was the word he used, that uh, Vice President Harris is taking Paxlovid. So... Something to think about, something to keep an eye on. 210-599-5555. I saw another video today of a guy flipping out at Costco. Have you seen this? I don't know where this was, but he's a customer at Costco, and he's got a mask on, and he is pointing a canister of pepper spray at this dude that works at Costco, and he's screaming at the guy to get away from him. And the guy is backing up, and the masked guy with pepper spray is moving in on him. So he wants the Costco employee to get away, but he keeps moving in closer. And the guy's not putting up any fight. They're not trying to make this guy do anything, this customer. He's just fanatical. He's threatening. And then he assaults him. He lunges and puts his hands on him, both of them. And at that point, a guy that looks like maybe he's security or something gets involved, and the dude brandishes the pepper spray at him. says, get away from me. We were told just a few days ago by people like Paul Krugman that there would be violence against people still wearing masks, that now that mask mandates were being lifted, people who chose to wear a mask would be harassed and attacked They'd be in danger. He said, if you're wearing an N95 especially, you'll be a target. I still haven't heard that, have you? 
But I still see people with masks. I'm not saying he represents all people wearing masks, but it's still going the other way. By the way, if somebody aims pepper spray at me, <laughs> we're going to have a discussion about more than just masks. I, that is outrageous. It really is worth asking, and I know it's a rhetorical question, who made people like this? How did we make people like this? What are we going to do with ourselves if we keep whipping people up into this kind of frenzy? I don't know who this man is behind the mask, but presumably he hasn't always been like this, right? Maybe, maybe, but presumably he has not. It's worth considering what we've done to people these last two years when we see the acting out that apparently is still going on. And if you want people to stay away from you, and if you want to wear a mask, by all means, I think you should have the right to have those things. But don't attack and threaten the people that are going on with their lives. And if you are this freaked out by being in a store, and I realize Costco's can get very crowded, then don't go. We're moving on. If you are not, I understand that. But you have options. In this economy, you have home delivery and favor and H-E-B curbside and all these things. We'll uh, kick off the weekend with The Dish coming up Friday in our 6 o'clock hour, a chance to talk about restaurants. Um, here's another one of these school assignments you may find interesting. This was a sociology assignment at uh, a high school in uh, Lake Forest, Illinois, suburb of Chicago. The assignment is entitled White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Backpack. The white privilege test was given to white students who were asked a series of questions. Let me just read you a few of the questions. See what you think about this. See if you think this is kosher or not. So the students were asked these questions, like survey style. Yes or no, you can answer yes or no to these. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Yes or no, true or false. I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind. This is the school assignment. My kind. I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I am told about our national heritage or about quote-unquote civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. You kind of see where this is going, right? I mean, after the first few questions, and I'm cherry-picking, there's about 30 of them, and I'm just reading a few here, but you kind of see where it's going, right? And, and I think kids are not going to miss the, the point, and they're going to get what they're supposed to say here. You can see what answers are expected, right? I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. Ooh. <laughs> I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider. This is white test for white privilege, to see if you have white privilege. I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. 
I can travel alone or with friends of my race without expecting embarrassment or hostility in those who deal with us. I will feel welcomed and normal in the usual walks of public life, institutional and social. So this assessment was given to these students. Again, it's a very wealthy suburb. It's mostly white. It's a white privilege assessment. Uh, What would you think if that assignment was given to your child of any race? Um, What do you think the point of this kind of assignment is? Like, what is this about? What is this for? I mean, we probably ought to ask the question. We don't really say this part out loud often enough. But isn't it worth asking sometimes, when did public school classrooms become the proper forum for these kinds of discussions or I was born a boy but I think they got it wrong and I'm really a girl. I mean, in in other words, before we even argue whether or not there's merit in having these discussions, why are they being had there? And I'll tell you why. Because it's a captive audience. Because if you try to stop people on the street and you start trying to take them down this path, they, they may brush you aside, they may brush you off, they may not want to go there. Probably most will not. But somebody figured out a long time ago that until the bell rings, the kids have to sit there. And you have power over them. You can give them an F if they don't do their homework. They don't do the assignment. Ergo, absolutely let's have this discussion there because they have to have it. And there's leverage, and there's power. But th- then I would like to understand, um, so as you hear these questions, perhaps in some cases they describe circumstances that are easier for white people, and in some cases I don't think they really do. But what are the students supposed to do with this? What are they supposed to do when they unpack their white privilege backpack? I mean, what would you say? 210-599-5555. The school was contacted, and um, because sometimes, as we had with the, the mom at, at the Northside School District I told you about on Monday, when she contacted the school about an assignment she didn't like that her kids were getting, and that was about... Uh, pronouns, gender pronouns, the school said, well, that's not our curriculum. That's the teacher doing their own thing. But in this case, the school said, no, that is our curriculum, and we are in favor of this survey. It's part of sociology. 210-599-5555. What do you think about these questions? And um, what do you think the intention is? I mean, I think we got to have this discussion. We've got to be honest. We can't just, you, you may be shaking your head right now and making your something smells bad face, and I don't blame you. You've had a long day. You don't want to deal. But we need, to, we need to talk about this and ask ourselves out loud and answer out loud, what's the point of this? How is this supposed to help? And who is this supposed to help? Because I'll tell you what I think, and I'll start with my take, but we, I certainly want to hear yours. 
when I see an assignment like this, or I see somebody instigate a conversation like this, I am apt to think that they are in favor of racial hatred and racial mistrust. That they believe we need more of that. They are suspicious of people different from them. They are prejudiced against people different from them. This is to teach students who are minorities that white people are not to be trusted because white people live on a different plane. They have a different set of of realities. Their lives are much easier. There's a secret handshake. They get stuff. You know, I just went recently went on. By the way, there's a new Jack's Books blog uh, that you can see at KTSA.com or on the 550 KTSA Facebook page. I do the uh, the book blog about uh, not exactly once a month, but uh, every so many weeks. And there's a new new one that just uh, posted last night. Um, so th- and then on the Jack's uh, the, the video, which we call uh, Jack Riccardi, just a minute. Um, I, I'm asking the question if you really are, and, and you don't have to call if you don't feel this way, because we've, we've exhausted this, right? But I really have not had anyone yet explain to me, just one-on-one, just you and me, what's the, the fear about Musk and Twitter? I don't want to hear what the people on MSNBC are saying. I don't want to hear what the, 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 the talking points are. You are worried about this. You are having anxiety about this. Why? I just I would like to hear it. I will just listen. I promise. I might ask a few questions. I won't argue with you. 210-599-5555. And I put out all my means of communication. You can tweet at me. You can comment on Facebook. You can call the show. You can email me, jack at ktsa.com, whatever's easiest for you. And we were talking about this assignment that this... Uh, high school gave in Illinois about white privilege. And I was thinking that there may be people, I mean, there probably are some people that just think it's ridiculous. But there may also be people who think, well, I could see maybe, maybe there's some merit, maybe there's some value in in young people thinking critically. But you know the problem with assignments like this isn't just the, the, the wording of it or the 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 heavy-handed, you know, you know, bias of it. It's also that you get the feeling there isn't genuine free speech in these classrooms. In other words, it might be different. It might be different if when students are given assignments like the ones you and I so often discuss, if there really was a freewheeling, everybody speaks their mind, all opinions are welcome, there's no, nobody's getting shut down. If somebody wants to say, I think this is bull, <laughs> I think you're full of it, they get to say that. But we know that's not true, right? We know that these assignments are heavily weighted and designed to elicit the quote-unquote right responses. So in the case of the Illinois story, Yes, I, I'm riddled with guilt. My life is way too easy because I'm white. I have all this unfair privilege. I mean, that's, that's what you're supposed to say. That's the correct answer. And I get the feeling that students that might 
want to push back or think that's bullcrap, d- d- just don't think they can. Right? And, I mean, what would you want your son or daughter to do in that situation? Would you want them to to stand up against their classmates and against their teacher? Or would you want them to just get through the sociology class and get the grade and there's only four weeks left of school, let's get the hell out of here? 210-599-5555. You know, I remember, this is kind of a weird offshoot, but when I was in kindergarten, I was the first born in my family, so my parents had never had a kid in school until I went to school. And I'd go to kindergarten, and I remember this so vividly. One day I bring home a piece of paper with macaroni glued to it. We had done an art project, and the teacher had us glue pieces of macaroni, like, you know, rigatoni or ziti or something, to the, to the paper to make art. I was immensely proud of this. I had never done anything like this before. I get home, and my dad is angry. And it kind of hurt my feelings. My little five-year-old feelings got hurt, because why is he mad? I did the artwork. Look, I created art. But what he was mad about was he couldn't believe in a time when there were starving children in our country and around the world, we were wasting food. He, that was his takeaway from the art project. How can they have you guys playing with macaroni? That's food. Somebody could have eaten that. That could have been somebody's dinner. And he was right. And I guess my point is, and I know it's not, it's kind of a reach from what we're talking about, but not everybody perceives things the same way, and there's merit to all those different perceptions. But the way these classrooms are being managed now, I, 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 I'm sure this is not always true, but it seems to be true too often. There is only one right answer. There's only one way to, to look at it, view it. So these questions this Illinois sociology teacher was asking, there's only one answer that can be given. There's no discussion about it. I'm not trying to tell personal stuff, but I just recently went and applied at my bank, where I've been a customer for 20-something years, for a, a homeowner's uh, line of credit, home equity line of credit. And I'm not complaining when I say this, but I had to jump through flaming hoops. Now, I could have at any point in time said, you know me. (laughs) I've got more money in your bank than this line of credit would entitle me to. What is the deal? But I understand that's what they do. I wasn't getting any privilege for being their longtime customer. I think this is a myth. And I think the real purpose of these exercises is to, is to fan the flames of something most of us have tried to extinguish most of our lives. Most of us who grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we were being taught to not mistrust, to not see people only through the color of their skin. I think an assignment like this is a total 180 on that. What do you think? Every one of these questions presumes that skin color determines everything. All the time. Again, if you hear it often enough. So, as part of believing in free speech and the free speech marketplace, I I am not in favor of banning or burning books. I like books so much, I have a whole blog about books. Um, And so, it's always been frustrating as a conservative to have book banning or book burning 
associated with being a conservative because that's the opposite of how I feel about books. Um, I, I don't read every book that comes out, but every book that comes out is probably read by someone and they have a right to read whatever they want to read. So there is an interesting thing going on with Amazon, another big company that is controlled by one guy. And um, it involves a best-selling children's book. So Matt Walsh, who's a conservative blogger and podcaster and frequently seen on Tucker Carlson and Fox News Channel, and I think we've had him on maybe once or twice over the years, but Matt Walsh um, decided to write a children's book. Um, And he did it, I'm sure with sincerity as far as the kids are concerned, but he also wanted to make a point about um, this idea of being or claiming whatever gender identity uh, you want. Um, So he wrote a book, and it's done so well that it's become Amazon's best-selling children's book called Johnny the Walrus. And um, there's this phone call that's come out with Amazon executives hearing a woman's complaint and responding to a woman's complaint. And I'm going to do this a little out of order. So you haven't heard the story yet. But I want you to hear her complaint about the book and then I'll, I'll I'll play the story for you, the actual book, the story of the book. This is the phone call that um, came into Amazon customer service, saying that this book is promoting the murder of LGBTQ children. Listen to this. To report a book that you are selling. I just checked your website, and the book is still up on there. I hate to tell you, but it says that the book, that it is shipped and sold from you, it is by Matt Walsh. It is teaching kids to kill, well, to bully transgenders, yeah, to, to bully them into committing suicide, the LGBTQIA, especially transgenders. The story is about a kid who likes to pretend he's different things, and one day he pretends he's a walrus, and the community tells him he either has to be a human or he has to be a walrus, or they're going to kill him. He can't be both. He can't pretend anymore. Now, the author, Matt Walsh, just tweeted this yesterday morning at 8.04 a.m. I now have the number one anti-LGBT book in the country. Any further criticism of me or my book is homophobic. Okay, so you get the idea. She's complaining to, to Amazon. How in the world can you people have this book on your website for sale? How do you sleep at night? 
This book is killing trans children. This book teaches that if a child uh, wants to be something different, they have to either stop doing that or they should be killed or they should kill themselves. She can't decide. That sounds horrible, right? I mean, what is? how could Matt Walsh write a book like that? What, what, what happened to Matt Walsh? Well, in fact, Matt Walsh didn't write a book like that. Nothing like that. And this is Matt Walsh reading to a classroom of kids his book, Johnny the Walrus. Take a listen and see what you think compared to her phone call. Okay. Johnny's a boy with a big imagination. One day he's a dog, the next day a crustacean. It's like a crab or, or a lobster. One morning he came downstairs barking and clapping. Wood spoons for tusks and sock fins a flapping. He had spoons in his mouth, he was pretending to be a walrus. I'm Johnny the walrus, he said with a roar. The wood floor's my ocean, the carpet's my shore. He's swimming around like a walrus, isn't that silly? Johnny's mom loves her son's make-believe time. You're Johnny the walrus till you change your mind, mommy says. But Johnny's mom's phone said it's not just pretend. So she went on her phone and there are people telling her that this isn't pretend, he's really a walrus. Only a bigot would say that, how dare you offend? What's a bigot, anybody know? The mean person, right? Mommy was told to take John for a checkup. All these people are holding signs. Johnny is a real walrus, one sign says. Human walruses are real walruses. Let Johnny transition, all these people are saying. You'll need to eat worms and to put on gray makeup. The worms give you whiskers, the gray blends you in, the doctor says. And a simple procedure cuts feet into fins. The doctor wants to cut into Johnny and make him into a walrus. It's gross eating worms, Mom. They're all so dang twitchy. He doesn't want to eat worms. Those are bad for you. I thought I didn't eat worms, but I did. Wood spoons kind of hurt, and the makeup is itchy. Deep down, Johnny's mom knew that something was wrong. Look at Johnny. He's, he's dressed up like a walrus, but he's not having a fun time. But she felt so much pressure, she just went along. The internet people knew just what to do. She went back to the internet to look for answers. Never a good idea. And mommy was told to take John to the zoo. Now she's going to take her son to go live at the zoo like he's a real walrus. I don't want to live at the zoo. When Johnny arrived, the walruses grunted. And the mommy says, my boy's a real walrus. His growth was just stunted. She really thinks this kid is a walrus. No. The zookeeper thought, what's she talking about? Ma'am, that's just a boy with wood spoons in his mouth. Now he's the voice of reason. But if I believe that, they'll say that I'm phobic. Protecting your son, ma'am, is what's most heroic. At last, Johnny's mommy was able to see that Johnny's not what he's pretending to be. Now mommy ignores the mean things on her phone while Johnny pretends he's a bird flying home. The end. Thank you. So the lady that called Amazon, by the way, it's, it's incredible to me that she got somebody at Amazon. Have you, ever, <laughs> have you ever tried to call customer service at Amazon? It's not easy. She told them, this book tells them to kill 
well, to bully themselves into killing themselves. That he must either be a walrus or they are going to kill him. You're selling a manual, she says, that teaches kids to bully other kids to commit suicide. I, I listen to every word. Did you hear that? I didn't hear that. So she's lying. Just straight up lying. It's not true. Either she hasn't read the book and someone has told her that's the gist of it, most likely. Or even worse, she has read it and knows that she's lying. And it's okay to lie when it's for your side, when you're making the argument for your point of view. Lies are okay. Anything is okay. Um, what did you think? I, I, I get the allegory. I get where he's going. It's not my favorite children's book, but, you know, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think, uh, I don't think H.A. Ray has anything to worry about, but, you know, I, I, I get where he's going with it. And I get the, the analogy. Um, and obviously a lot of people have bought the book, perhaps in, in part because of his notoriety, but also in part because maybe this is helpful to their kids to hear this version of events, of this way of, of looking at it. Because you don't hear this very often. You hear only that whatever people uh, claim to be, then they objectively are that thing. I'd like to claim that I'm the winner of the Masters Golf Tournament. I want to be recognized as that. I don't want to do any of the work or practice or have any of the skills. I just want to identify as the winner of the Masters. Now, We've just come through a period of time, right, where schools were robustly defending the presence on library shelves of books where one boy fellates another boy and all this other stuff. And we were told it's, it's vital to our democracy and our free speech that the book about oral sex be on the shelf in the library. And, and I'm not trying to get books taken away. I'm not trying to, I, I wanna, I wanna add, not subtract. From the free speech marketplace. That's my thing. Add, don't subtract. And answer, don't cancel. So Matt Walsh adds a book to the marketplace, if you will, to the shelf, if you will, and apparently very successfully. And it was Amazon, just so you're clear, it was the company that released this uh Zoom call or whatever you want to call it, they were having this this meeting in which they were considering the concern of this woman that had called them. So one person called, lied about the book, misrepresented what was in it. I mean, grossly misrepresented, that it was a manual for suicide. Boy, if it was, I'd be against it too. And then they were virtue signaling, look at us as we wrestle with this. And the executives... uh say, well, this book is a big problem for us. Yeah, they're selling thousands of them. <laughs> it's a big problem. So they're trying to have it both ways, right? Let me just put it this way. Without getting into the the issue that Matt Walsh is addressing for the moment, what he's you know, what this book is really saying, what this book is about. And this ask what happened to our ability to exist or coexist with things we didn't like and didn't agree with 
You know, I sometimes wonder what people like my daughter's generation or, you know, Generation Z or whatever, they, when they look at the movies we had, the songs we had, the television shows we had, and how politically incorrect those things are by today's standards, do they think we were all the same? Do they think we were all okay with those things? Did every, when Blazing Saddles came out, did everybody love it? Did everybody think the King Tut song we played yesterday was funny? Short answer, no. King Tut wasn't everybody's cup of tea. Blazing Saddles wasn't everybody's favorite movie. Some people in the day found it vulgar and coarse and repulsive and didn't go watch it. In fact, most people didn't watch it, as is the case with most movies, right? Way more people don't see a movie than do see it. But we coexisted with, and we seem not to rip our hair out over creations and uh, uh, expressions that were not ours. By the way, we had far fewer things on the menu. We only had a few TV channels, but somehow, if there was something on one of them, we didn't sit there and go, one-third of my television is repulsive. We just watched one of the other channels, or radio channels, or newspapers, or whatever it was. How is it that people were able to do that? How is it that now we claim, at least, we can't do it? I'm not sure I believe that we can't do it. You hear people say that all the time. I think we pretend we can't. But it's interesting, isn't it? So this book may not be your cup of tea. You may not like his message. You may just think it's a poorly written book. I don't know. So you don't buy it. (laughs) So it just sits there, and it's for somebody else. When my daughter was little and we would get children's books for her and get them out of the library and get them out of the bookstore, I was always amazed at how many there were. And she liked books and she read a lot of books and we read a lot of books to her, but I'm sure we only scratched the surface. I'm sure we didn't, I'm sure we didn't read 1% of the books that are out there for kids. I'm sure we didn't even get close to 1%. So that means that there were exponentially more books that I know nothing about. I don't know what they said or what the message was. So what? Apparently they were somebody's cup of tea. 210-599-5555. Sometimes it's easier to just join the, the fight. You know, you it's fun, right? You see something like this, and you wade in, and you pick up a banner for one side or the other. And I don't blame you, and I do that too sometimes. But sometimes I like to just instead just kind of like step back and go, why... Why is this a fight in the first place? Like, so the F what? If if Matt Walsh wrote a children's book, from what I've seen, Matt Walsh probably ought to keep his day job. You know, I think he's probably better at column writing and commentary than he is at children's books. But so what? Um, so what's going to happen with the Supreme Court in the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District? That's the... Uh, Joe Kennedy is the football coach and uh, military veteran. He was coaching at Bremerton High School, which is near Seattle. And he had a uh, habit of praying at midfield on the sideline. So on the sideline, middle of the sideline, at the end of every game, quietly, not out loud. Um, 
Some players would kneel next to him. Others did not. Uh, sometimes opposing team members would kneel. It's an interesting thing. I don't know if you watch sports or not. I've seen this now in, in every sport I've watched. Um, I've, I've seen it in pro and college football, pro and college basketball, which are the main ones I watch. When athletes pray, uh, they're all on the same team. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter which uniform you have on. It's very interesting, very powerful to see that. Anyway, so, um, he was doing this for a number of years. He coached for a number of years. Um, and he was reported on by the coach of an opposing team. And the, the, make a long story short, there was a whole series. This came out in the in the oral arguments. There was a whole series of communications between his school district and Coach Kennedy about what he was doing. They were guiding him on things you can't do. They were urging him to take it private to go pray in a, in, a, in a closet or a locker room or the press booth. They told him that his prayer must not interfere with his job responsibilities. They told him that he shouldn't try to influence the kids. They told him that in his motivational speeches in the locker room, which are the meat and potatoes of a, of a, of a football coach, he couldn't in any way reference prayer, divine help, intervention. It had to be entirely secular. Which, if you think about it in its own way, is a kind of religious orthodoxy. When you have to be extremely rigidly secular, that's its own, that's kind of its own religion. That's kind of its own orthodoxy. But anyway, so they had uh, been telling him all this. And of course, part of that was to change his behavior. Part of that, you know, I'm sure, was to create a paper trail for what they probably figured was inevitable. At one point, he stopped the prayers temporarily. One night, he did not pray. The game ended. Everybody left the stadium. And he says, I then went back to the stadium and prayed by myself. It's a poignant and sort of um, tragic image in my mind as I think about that. So he knew, he started talking to lawyers, he knew that they were, you know, paving the way. And um, the uh, eventual decision uh, was that he had to stop. And when he didn't, um, he was let go. He's gone to court and argued that his rights to free speech and the free exercise of religion, both part of the First Amendment, have been violated by this pressure, by this instruction, by these orders from the the school. The district court declined to give him his job back. He continued. He pursued it. Uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit upheld that ruling, and Coach Kennedy and his legal team went to the Supreme Court and there's a lot of issues here, obviously. Um, and we talked about this yesterday in terms of what it involved and what what it means to tell people of any faith 
not to show their faith. It doesn't mean you can't have faith, but it is it gives the lie to the idea that we have religious liberty. So there are people in totalitarian countries who have faith. You know that. You could argue that, well, they're fine. They've got their faith. They pray. They've got Bibles. They just have to bury them in a box in the backyard after they're done reading them so nobody finds them with the Bible. Or they they can have uh, religion. They just can't have it with other people. Or when it's light out. You can make that argument, but you can't really call that religious freedom. It's the existence of faith against, you know, a hostile environment. So when you hear this story, and you hear what he was doing, I've heard from some people, I guess they didn't want to call in, but they emailed me last night. And they said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I go to church, and I'm religious. I don't want you to get mad at me, Jack, but I just don't like what he was doing. I just don't think it had anything to do with football. I don't think it had anything to do with anything. I I think you just needed to concentrate on football. And, and I, I, I get what you're saying. So there were people essentially saying, I don't want to be on the record as against him because I'm Christian I think I'm a good person. I imagine he's a good person. But, Jack, he just needed to concentrate on football. Here's my answer to that. I watched a documentary the other day on ESPN. Uh, I forget what it's called. They're running it every so often. You know how they kind of they have the, that documentary series that they do? And th- their documentaries are usually really, really good. And this one was about Joe Paterno and his legacy at Penn State University. And if you don't know college football, Joe Paterno was the winningest football coach in college football history. He was with one school for several decades. He brought that school from football obscurity to football royalty. Penn State is a you know top-rated, top-ranked, blue-chip, uh, recruiting powerhouse, perennial contending football team that all happened in the decades of Joe Paterno's leadership. Joe Paterno was not only successful as a coach, but he was revered by players who played on his teams over the decades. And then it came to light several years ago that one of his assistant coaches was a perv, was a real weirdo, a guy named Jerry Sandusky. And he had been with Joe Paterno for a long time, which is a little bit unusual in the position that Sandusky had. And it maybe should have been a hint that something was up because the position Jerry Sandusky had is usually a position young men take and then they move on to other things. But he stayed and he stayed in one place and did the same thing. And and he was like Paterno's right-hand man at Penn State. And he was abusing little boys. In fact, he had formed a charity specifically to put him in contact with boys, pre-adolescent boys, seemingly for the purpose of grooming them and having access to them. And he was a serial abuser. And this came out in an avalanche of revelations, accusations, and it was stunning. If you're a sports fan, you'll never forget. I think it was 2012 when all this was going down, 2011 or 2012. It was really brutal. And um, Jerry Sandusky was guilty and is serving essentially a life sentence. Joe Paterno 
was asked by the university, by the authorities, by the boosters, by what did you know and when did you know it? And I'm making a long story short here. I'm trying to. Paterno basically gave the I'm concentrating on football answer. He was a good man. Joe Paterno was not a bad person. But Joe Paterno concentrated on football. Joe Paterno's mistake, if you, if I may judge him, was that he thought it was important to keep the program unbesmirched, to not have controversy, to not make waves. When he was aware of what Sandusky was doing to these boys, he kept it within the university hierarchy. He didn't go outside. He didn't call the police. He didn't think it was important to let anybody else know. He thought other people would do the right thing, and he could just continue to be the head football coach. He did what they're telling Coach Kennedy in Washington to do. He concentrated on football. Joe Paterno was fired. And, I mean, this was somebody that you would never have thought would be fired. He would retire. He would be honored. They had a statue of him. They had named stuff after him. That's all gone, by the way, now. But my point is, when you are a coach, and if you are a good coach, the thing that makes you a good coach is that you don't just concentrate on football. That's actually the worst advice they could be giving Coach Kennedy. That's advice given by people that have no idea what coaches really do or what it means to be a coach. They don't know what the hell they're talking about when they say that. I saw where today is Administrative Professionals Day, and please don't hate me, but is that what we used to call Secretary's Day? I'm just asking because I, I, I'm apt to use terms that are dated and no longer in use and you get you get some awful looks when you call somebody a secretary that's apparently that's a really bad word now i i'm so old i remember when that was that was a title of respect secretary i I think that's what used to be secretary's day and now it's administrative professionals day i still occasionally slip never on an airplane but i have been known to occasionally refer to stewardesses and you're not Oh, Lord, you're not, you can't, no, can't do it. 210-599-5555 on the JR poll, have you had COVID-19 already? New uh, survey from CDC says about 60% of us have, about three-fourths of children already have had it. So I saw this thing on Facebook, I thought it was a pretty cool question. You're going to know my answer to this question the minute I ask it, but if you could have only one vehicle from a famous movie or television show, what would it be? You can have any of them. You can have the Dukes of Hazard. You can have the DeLorean from Back to the Future. You can have the Ghostbusters Ambulance. Which one would you take? Famous vehicle from a television show or movie. 210 599 5555. You're gonna, if you know anything about me and you know my love of all things James Bond movies, I would want obviously the Aston Martin DB5. Because it's, it's, it's the weapons, come on, you know. Not only is it a cool looking car, I mean, it just looks so good in silver with the wire wheels, but come on, the weapons, really? 
You heard the story I told the other day, right? About the road rage thing? How cool would it be to shoot oil at that guy, right? I mean, come on. I promise I wouldn't use the rockets too much. I try to I try to hold back on the machine gun. But what would it be? Would it be um maybe it would be Knight Rider? Kit. Right? Wasn't that his name? Kit. 210-599-5555. You can have any vehicle from any movie or television show. What would it be? I'm handing you the keys. You just have to tell me which one you want. 210-599-5555. And a lot of people are saying the DeLorean from Back to the Future. A lot of people are saying James Bond. I think I think Bond is going to be up there. I think he's going to be top three before we're done here. But uh, what would it be? Maybe it would be, how about that that snazzy-looking Ford Grand Torino done up in red with the white swoop that Starsky and Hutch used to drive? See, when I was a kid, I was already a car buff, and so I always noticed the car. Like, even if it was sort of incidental to the show. Like, do you remember the old detective series Cannon with William Conrad? It was... It was I love that show, but obviously the car was not the thing. But Canon always had a Lincoln Continental Mark IV or Mark whatever it was, Mark III or Mark IV. It depended on the year of the series. But um, I always thought that was a cool car. That was the kind of car a private eye like him should drive. How about Rockford and the Firebird, right? I mean, that was iconic. When that co- when that uh, show came out, when the Rockford Files came out, Pontiac was selling those uh, that color like crazy. Everybody wanted exactly that color Firebird that James Rockford drove. 210-599-5555. By the way, today is the anniversary of the end of Pontiac. This is the day in, I think it was 08 or 09, the General Motors killed that brand. Still miss it. All right, let's start with Stephen on KTSA. Stephen, you can have any vehicle from any movie or television show. What would it be? Yeah, yes, sir. It would be a Lone Wolf McQuaid's Dodge Ram. Lone Wolf McQuaid's Dodge Ram. Help! I'm blanking here. What is Ch- that? Chuck Morris. Oh, Chuck okay. Norris. All right. All right. Now, I, yeah. see, the character didn't do it for me. We say Chuck Norris. I remember it now. Why that? Why would you want that one? Oh, it was a supercharged. You can get it out of your own grave. Yeah. You know. You know. It's a. Uh, it's great. Beautiful car. Looked just like the. Uh, uh, Bronco of uh, O.J. Simpson, kind of, but, you know, it's a Dodge Ram thing, you know? Anyway, I don't think anybody will be voting guy, for the O.J. Simpson Bronco. I don't know. Maybe somebody will, but, yeah, that's a good choice. All right, thank you, Stephen. Uh, Paul is on KTSA. Any vehicle from any movie or show, what would it be, Paul? Uh, the movie, the car by the same name, Gran Torino. There you go. There you go. Don't, I can't interest you in the Starsky and Hutch Gran Torino? No, I like that one with uh, Clint Eastwood in that film. You like, the, you like the Clint Eastwood better. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Ooh, we got kind of a surprise leader on the board for most popular television or movie car. I would not have expected this, but it makes sense. A lot of people, Dennis, are saying the Ferrari from Magnum P.I. Hmm, interesting. Back in the 80s. He drove a red Ferrari 308, and that was one of the... That was back when Ferrari was Ferrari, when Mr. Ferrari himself was still alive. and Because uh, the purists would tell you today, well, now it's just a name, you know, and all that. But in any event, very cool car. I was such a car nut when I was a kid that I would notice the cars, even on shows where the car was not a 
really a, a fixture or or meant to be noticed. Like I always noticed in Dragnet, uh, Joe Friday drove a fair lane, and I thought it was so funny one time in one um, one episode. For whatever reason, he got into his own car to drive home. You know, they were always in the the unmarked te- detective unit, and there was always a Ford Fairlane. So he goes and he gets his own car. It's the same car. Like he had to he had to buy exactly the same car. That was Joe Friday, though, right? Never deviating. Um, and then for me, one of my favorites. Again, it wasn't really a star of the show, but I loved uh, the Mercury Park Lane that uh, Jack Lord drove. On Hawaii Five O, he only had two cars on that series, and for most of the series, it was that uh, late '60s uh, Park Lane, and then toward the end, it was a Grand Marquis. But uh, great, great, beautiful cars, and um, I don't know. To, I just they always stood out to me. But getting a lot of uh, emails about the Magnum Ferrari, a lot for the DeLorean, uh, a lot of people loving uh, the. Mustang that Clint Eastwood drove in Bullet. And what would be if you could have one vehicle from any movie or television show, what would it be? 210-599-5555. Kirk is on KTSA. Kirk, good evening to you, sir. Good evening, Jack. Uh, yeah, I, I was calling about the the, the uh, 68 Hunter uh, Green uh, Mustang fastback. That was that was Steve McQueen. You said, you said Clint yeah. Eastwood. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, right, Clint. That's right, Steve McQueen. Yeah, no, 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 it's all good. Yeah, that was all I was calling um, about. I mean, that was just a. I mean, it was one of the greatest, allegedly one of the greatest car chase scenes in 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 you know movie history. And yeah, Lilo yeah. Schifrin wrote the the uh, the score for that, and he did yes, he, he did, did a lot of uh, score for. Uh, Clint, yeah. Clint, he did do a lot of score for Clint Eastwood movies, and, and mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that was also in San Francisco, obviously. So obviously, you have that whole mm-hmm. Dirty Harry syndicate. So yeah. Now was Bullet was car. such a popular car that Ford came yeah. out with various versions of it over the years and different different generations of the Mustang. So there were tons of people driving around in exactly that car, which I guess is the highest compliment you can pay it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there was a cool little backstory in 1974 a, a fam it got discovered that, that car so it got auctioned off at some point and it was it, the original platform was discovered in a barn, I believe, in Pennsylvania. You can look it up online, and uh, it was actually on display in D.C. two or three or four years ago. The original platform, because it's such an iconic part of America. I, I thought I read that, that there were actually several of them used in the movie. Oh. That there were two okay. that two, one that he drove, and that were maybe like two or three others that were used in different shots. Because uh, okay. I think I think they had I think they found that. You know, to, back in those days, in order to like shoot the interior, you had to take the door off, you know, to right, take a seat out right, or something. Right, so I, I'm pretty sure there was one that he drew. Probably the real one, but people would consider to be the real one would be the one that he actually drives in the in the scenes, right? I think we lost. I think we lost Kirk. Um, anyway, yeah, no, that's a great. That is a great choice. It is Steve McQueen. Um, I even like the car he was chasing. He, Don, and I were just talking about this off the air. Uh, in the in the famous chase scene, where he is after the syndicate guys, um, you remember they were they were following him, and then he turns the table and he's chasing them. They're in like a, I think a Dodge Charger. I'm pretty sure it is. And again, being a car nut, I thought you know even that is a pretty cool car until they you know total it. 
I don't think you can repair what they did to theirs. But 210-599-5555. Any movie, any television show, you can have the vehicle from that show or any vehicle from that show. What would it be? And Joe is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jack. How are you doing this evening? Good. How are you? Good. Well, I want to share a little story here. You know, you, you talk about if there was any car you could have. To me, the 1976 Grand Torino that was made so mm. famous by Starskin Hutch. Yeah. And I wanted it so bad, I hunted it down, and I bought it, and I owned it. The actual car from the show? The actual car. They considered it, wow. it called Hero Car Number 1. And, uh, you know, Jack, it was just down the street from you. It was in Seguin, Texas, for about uh, about four years. Wow. Yeah. So what was the – how did it – how did it sort of wind up there, and how did you find it? Okay, so I uh, I got into the you know the fandom of uh, you know enjoying the car and all that stuff. Um, right. I, I was in the Desert Auto Museum in uh, Florida, uh, in Miami, mm-hmm. and they had a um, they had one of the movie cars there, and um, I decided that I wanted. I'm in the collision repair business. I'm in the body shop business. That I wanted to make me a copy car. So I went in there and I asked for permission. Could I, you know, take measurements and stuff? Um, I left and came back. I felt like I did not do my homework properly. And I wanted to take some more measurements and some more, you know, some more photographs. And the guy was all like, uh, are you, are you looking for the, the movie car, the TV car? And I said, well, do you have, what do you have? And he had the, what they considered once again, hero car number one, and they had it in the back room uh, with uh, a bunch of props and mannequins and stuff like that, along with, you know, a, a dozen or more other cars. And when I saw the car, I knew it. I knew it was the car because hmm. I had, as everybody does their homework, they look online, they see who, where it happened to it. And right. um, I spent four years trying to buy that car. And I finally, they had an online private auction I signed mm-hmm. up for it and I bought it. Wow! Brought it back, brought it back to Seguin, Texas. Um, like I said, I'm in the body shop business. I uh, I did a preservation on, totally disassembled the car, um, mm. and left dents in it and uh, mm. and repainted it back the original single stage. Uh, I used a polyurethane, but they originally like it was an acrylic enamel. Um, put the stripe on this in the exact same place. I taped everything off to, to be accurate. Um, and wound up doing a couple of shows with Antonio Fargus. I actually did a comic con with him in Bryan college station. He was Huggy bear. I did a show with Paul Michael Glaser. Uh, we did it at the uh, Ford nationals, uh, on the 40th anniversary of the car was there with him. He, he, he and Antonio, uh, uh, David soul did not make it. To that uh, show, but he and Antonio sat back in the car, and uh, Paul Michael Glaser said, "I did everything I could to destroy that car." He <laughs> said, "I hated that car. It was a pig." He said, "It was a grocery grabber that he called yeah. the uh, yeah. striped tomato." And uh, well, because you know the Grand Torino in its day was not a glamorous car. It wasn't a car that young boys would lust after. It was a family sedan. No. It was their mid the mid size Ford. But they made it cool with that white stripe. That that did it. Aaron Spelling wanted to originally, they wanted to use a Camaro for it. And they didn't. They went with the Torino. And yeah. they uh, one of the prop guys, uh, you know, t- 
threw a stripe on it, and that's when Paul Michael Glaser uh, deemed it yeah. the striped tomato. There you go. That's a great story, Joe. I'm glad you, I'm glad you rescued that car. Every television and movie car should have a guy like you that comes along and, and fixes it up. So thank you for that. Great story. Um, you, when you watch the old television shows, you'll see in the credits that they always had a deal with Ford or General Motors or whoever, Cadillac or whoever it was, and all the cars that the, the good guys drive and sometimes even all the cars that the bad guys drove were from this one manufacturer. I love Mannix. I watch Mannix all the time. And uh, they had a deal with Chrysler. So he always was in a, like a Dodge Dart GTS or a, a Challenger. Um, and then I, 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 I always laugh because in every episode, there's like a bad, like a boss bad guy in an Imperial. And I was thinking to myself, did they really want that association? That was their top of the line luxury make. They always put it in the hands of some, you know, crime boss or or a guy that you know killed his wife or whatever but that's that was how they always did it the minute you see the imperial behind whatever joe mannix is driving you know he's in trouble he's about to get run off the road or something chris writes uh that if he could have any car from a movie or television show he would like the retired police cruiser from the blues brothers and that is a great choice that was a dodge monaco i'm pretty sure that's a that's a nameplate everybody's forgotten about. You never see them on the road anymore. They were very common as police cars. When I was growing up, the town I lived in, the police department had Dodge Monaco's as uh, as the police car. Um, yeah, it's a good choice. 210-599-5555. Any movie, any show, and Linda is on KTSA. All right, Linda, you get the keys. What would it be? Uh, I love the Corvettes that they used in Route 66. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that was the that was were like uh, early 60s Corvettes. Those were the prettiest Corvettes I think of them all. They were gorgeous, and I was surprised yeah. to learn that they used several. And everybody thought that some of the Corvettes were red because they filmed in black and white, but they were actually mm-hmm. tan and gray. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I, I think I read one time that when they were filming movies and television shows in black and white, um, a lot of times they had to use colors that would surprise you so that it would look, you know, the lighting and everything would look right, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I didn't mind looking at the guys that were in the car either. They were pretty cute. Well, there you go. Yeah, was wasn't Martin Milner? Wasn't Martin Milner uh, one of the guys on Route sixty six? Or yes, am I mixing that up with somebody else? George Maharis and Martin. George Maharis, yeah. And Martin Milner got the. I read one time he got cast in that show primarily because he was a good driver, and they needed actors that could actually do a lot of the driving, not just have stunt drivers. So, and then he got on uh, Adam Twelve. Remember him on Adam Twelve? Exactly. Yeah, you brought Same all thing. to my mind. I'm going to have to watch reruns tonight. There you go. There's worse ways to spend a night, right? There you go. Thank you, Linda. Um, yeah, Route 66 and the Corvettes. Um, one of the things I used to notice, again, because I was a, a nerd and am a nerd, uh, and, and Adam 12 did this a lot. So they had, uh, I think Plymouths and then they switched to AMC Matadors. But sometimes they'd use interior shots and the interior would be from an older car or an older, you know, shoot and it wouldn't match the exterior of the car that they got out of, you know, like they'd, they'd be, they'd, they'd have like a Plymouth interior. Then they'd, he'd 
the, the shot would change. They'd be climbing out of a, an AMC Matador, uh, uh, you know, cruiser. 210-599-5555. So for me, it's the James Bond car from, you know, uh, Thunderball and, and, uh, what else was that car in? I think it was in, I think it was in Goldfinger, right? He still had the Aston Martin in Goldfinger, I think. Um, what, what would be your movie or TV car? You can have the keys to any one of them, but only one of them. And Patrick is on KTSA. Hi, Patrick. Hello. Hi, Jack. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm hanging out. Just hanging out. So what for would me, it be? Okay, for me, since I'm into muscle cars, uh, it would have to be a 70 Cuda, the one that Nash Bridges drove in, in the series with Cheech Marine. There you go. That was, you yeah, know that car. That car shows up in a lot of movies and television shows. At one point, I'm pretty sure um, I think Mannix might have had either the the Barracuda or the the Dodge version of it, the Challenger. But uh, yeah, those were those were great cars. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite a, a Mopar man, but I got to give that car respect. On top of the fact I agree. that it's uh, one of only a couple, I think ten that were made. So that would definitely go good for retirement. Purpose. Did they ever? I never. I never really got into that series. Did they ever explain why the character was driving such an old car? No, just he. I think he got it. If I'm not mistaken, his it belonged to his brother. I think that was in the military who oh, passed okay. away or something, and and he ended up with it, and that's why he always kept it and took good care of it because of a family. That was the time. story. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good I, that's a good backstory. Correctly. Yeah. I would watch. Actually, I always watch the show more because I like seeing the Cuda. Uh, you're my kind of guy, Patrick. There are many there are many shows that for me the favorite thing in the show is the car. I like that. Thank you for the call tonight. Appreciate it. Uh, ben is on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA. Hi, Ben. Hey, Jack. How are you this afternoon? Good. What's up? Oh, nothing. Just you know, enjoying your show, and thought I'd uh, throw in my little two cents, but. Um, I always uh, always was a GTO guy. I, I love GTOs. My dad told me some stories about his his dad, his buddies, and you know his Novas and all this stuff. But as far as movies and whatnot, uh, Eleanor always caught my attention on uh, Gone in sixty seconds. And I, I have to say, I think the best thing about that cars. movie are the cars. The best thing in that movie are the cars. Yeah. Oh, definitely. They got some. They got some really really cool rides in there, but. Yep. Of course, Eleanor's the star, but I mean, it's just, it's just a well put together car. You know, it's a, I believe it's a '67 uh, Shelby GT. And right, just, a Shelby Mustang. Just, yeah, man, you know those things. When you when when you do get lucky to see one like out and about, when I, I've seen one or two, but you listen to them and the way they just sit there and purr is just it's awesome. I'm with you on that. That's a great choice. Good one. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Mark is on KTSa. All right, Mark. One vehicle, any movie or show. What would it be? Hey, Jack. It's the black Lamborghini Kunta that came out on the Cannonball Run movie back in the eighties. Oh yeah, that that was another movie that was all about the cars, right? Yeah, yeah. I just love the way. Uh, that car was designed every to me every angle of that car is just beautiful the back uh fender mm-hmm. uh fender flares that big spoiler and the, the mm-hmm. wide tires that's that's got to be my all-time favorite car 
I'm with you on that. It's a great choice. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Uh, JB writes to Jack at KTSA.com. The General Lee from Dukes of Hazard. I thought we would get more calls than the General Lee. Um, or, he says, if that's taken, uh, the Lotus from Roger Moore's James Bond movie, and I think he's referring to the one that goes underwater. Remember, the, remember he had a, a car that he drives underwater and the wheels fold up underneath and it becomes a submarine and then they drive up onto the beach and he rolls down the window and throws a fish out uh the spy who loved me maybe yeah great choice um a lot of great cars in the bond movies uh besides the aston martin um let's see what else do we have here via email brian says the batmobile yeah definitely getting some uh votes for the a-team uh, van too. What was that? A Chevy van or a GMC van? The got to have the A team van, right? With B A and face. It's not perfected yet. Where's my Bentley? Oh, it's had its day, I'm afraid. But it's never let me down. Emma's orders, 007. You'll be using this Aston Martin DB5 with modifications. Now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof. That's on the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates, naturally. Valid all countries. You see the gear lever here? Now, if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. That was quite an upgrade for James Bond because when he got that car, and I I believe that was uh, in Goldfinger. Is that right, Don? Um, when he when he got that car, his previous car and his car in the books that were written by Ian Fleming w- w- was like a 1930 Bentley, a four-liter V8 Bentley that he loved. Uh, it was supercharged. and So you're going from a 1930 to a 1960-something uh, Aston Martin. That's a pretty big upgrade. Uh, 210-599-5555 as we talk about your favorite movie or TV Vehicle, if you could have one and only one, and we actually talked to a gentleman who once owned the Starsky and Hutch Gran Torino, the actual car, but if you could have one of these, which one would it be and why? And Brian is next on KTSA. Hi, Brian. Hey, Jack. What would it be, Brian? Oh, well, it was going to be that car from the Road Warrior in I don't know what it was. I I think it you said, you mentioned it was a Ford something or other, but I just love the way they had filmed the cars in that movie and that car like when he flicked the supercharger on. I remember seeing the movie when I was 8. I just thought, man, that car like is so amazing and they made it look so fast. Are we talking about Mad Max? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, the Mad Max yeah. car. I think if it's the car I'm thinking of, it's an Australian Ford Falcon. Okay. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't like the Fal- Ford Falcon we had in this country. It had nothing to do with that, no resemblance to that. But it was a very, you're right, it was a very cool-looking kind of a wedge-shaped car. 
Um, and it was obviously heavily modified in the in the movie. I'm pretty sure that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds right. It looked a little that's, like a Mustang. Yeah, yeah. It did. It did look like a Mustang. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great choice. That's we have not had that one yet. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. Thank you, Brian. Um, I like when people kind of pull one in that we had forgotten about. Um, like the eight, I would never have even thought of the A-Team van, but we got van fans out there. That's good. 210-599-5555, and Arthur is on KTSA, Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Arthur. Hey, how about the monkey mobile? <laughs> there you go. You know, you're a man that likes to have a high profile, huh? Well, I was, I was torn between the monkey mobile and the monster, the car from the monsters. Oh, the Munsters, yeah, right. I don't even know what that is. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> Some old car. Yeah, no, I, I that you definitely would stand out in traffic in either one of those. I'm with you on that. Or maybe the banana splits car. I might have to get the banana splits car. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. You can have one movie or television show's vehicle from the past or present. What would it be? Don, you were mentioning American Graffiti. Paul says that would be his, uh, the 55 Chevy. Uh, we had somebody mention Christine uh, from the movie Christine, which is a movie about a car. It's a Stephen King story and movie about a, a, a haunted or possessed car, which I think is a 58 Fury. I may be off a year on that, but it's a Fury, which I always thought was kind of interesting, right, because even the name goes with the car i mean the car is kind of a avenging angel right so fury is the perfect name for it 210-599-5555 mike is on the radio mike what would it be good afternoon great topic for the drive home today yeah which one is uh, your favorite Joe, you know, if you can only pick one and you already picked bond i would go with the white ferrari Tuscaloosa from miami vice that that Sonny Crockett drove, I believe, starting in season two or three. Boy, those guys, they had the clothes, the car. They were always in, like, cool clubs, right? Well, the story goes, I think they used a fake Daytona, Ferrari Daytona, based on a, a Corvette body. So oh, okay. When the, series, when the series took off, Ferrari sent them a cease and desist letter, but then they sent them two white Testarossus right on top of that. <laughs> He said, use this car instead. So uh, Yeah, maybe they didn't have the budget at first for the real thing, right? Absolutely. But, uh, there you go. Great, Very good. Uh, great, great topic. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. That's a great choice. Um, yeah, there have been there have been all kinds of stories. I know, like, I, I remember reading about uh, how with Bullet there, were, there was more than one Mustang that they used. And I think you'd find probably with most television series or or movies if the car is in a lot of scenes or if there's a lot of action with the car there almost has to be more than one of them you know and there and there often is and then there's disputes later on when people at a, at a at an auto show or collectors will say well i have the car from people will say well it, which one of those is it is it is it just one of the the secondary ones or is it the main one is it the one the character actually is scene ends there's all these people get very into the weeds about all that stuff i guess you can um somebody mentioned i'm trying to think where it is here it's so much email somebody mentioned the and I, I i don't even remember this i remember watching um chips 
But somebody said the car that Punch drove, so they were on motorcycles, obviously, when they were on duty, but I guess he had a cool car. I don't remember the car that he drove, but I guess he had a car when he was off duty. Uh, 210-599-5555. A lot of votes for the Starsky and Hutch car. Uh, Andy says the AMC Pacer from Wayne's World. Are you sure about that, Andy? You don't want to set your sights higher on that? Um, Rodney says he likes the uh, Guy Fieri car from Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Is that a Camaro? or I think it might be. Uh, let's see where we're going here next. Uh, Steve is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. All right, Steve, only one movie or TV show vehicle. What would it be? How you doing, Jack? It's actually Dean. but uh, Oh, Dean, okay. It's a couple cars I'm surprised haven't been brought up. Magical cars from my youth, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Herbie the Love Bug. Mm-hmm. But like you say, I set my height sights a little bit higher, uh, and it actually kind of torn between two cars, uh, the Ford and the Ferrari from Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, okay. All right. That's that's. I hadn't even. I, I don't know why I now hadn't even thought of that movie. Yeah, that movie's all about cars. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Herbie the Love Bug. Herbie the Love Bug was cute, but I can't. I can't see myself wishing I owned Herbie the Love Bug. You know what I mean? Like it's not it was magical. It was magical. Yeah. Yeah. And keep bang bang. That was kind of long and looked like the fast yeah. car. Magical. That was that was a pretty cool that was a pretty cool car and of course Dick Van Dyke kind of cooled it up even a little bit more yeah no those those are good choices on the JR poll powered by Stevens Roofing have you already had COVID serology from CDC says uh, about sixty percent of Americans have already had it three out of four kids have already had it uh, our survey tonight sixty percent say no that's just the opposite forty percent say yes if you haven't had covid i would not recommend it just saying there's other things to have 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 a v8 don't have covid uh steven writes to jack at ktsa.com uh for me it would be the hannibal twin eight from the great race tony curtis and jack lemon wow it was the one driven by professor fate it had a heat device to travel through snow if not that then the family truckster from National Lampoon Vacation, the family truckster. Those are some pretty far out there choices. Um, Steve says the black 78 Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. I think that was sort of like the, that had the same effect as the, um, you know, the copper colored Firebird from Jim Rockford. I mean, just that, that sold a lot of those because everybody had to have that color combination. And I guess that's why the car companies get involved in the first place. They're always hoping they'll they'll hit that you know sweet spot where it will create. It won't just be incidental, but it will create a lot of demand, and the vehicle will become iconic. And some of these certainly have. Some of these we had forgotten about till people mentioned them. But uh, yeah, some of these certainly became iconic because they were in the movie or they were in the TV show. Um, a lot of mentions of the Batmobile. And the Munster Mobile, Mark says both of those were George Barris, who was a he was a uh, kind of a hot rod guy in California. Did a lot of movie cars and did a lot of cars for private owners as well. Um, so, what would be yours? You can have one vehicle from a movie or television show. What would it be? And Steve is on KTSA. Hi, Steve. Hi, Jack. 
Okay, full disclosure, I'm not a car guy. But the 1926 Model T Ford that Elvis Presley restores (laughs) in the movie Kid Galahad. He took it from a barn, black, dusty rag, and just cherried it out to a a fire engine red or a cherry red, whatever. And again, full disclosure, may not have just been all about the car, although a simpler time, a simpler place and time. Yeah. But it may have had something to do also. My affection for the car may have had something to do also with, with the girl he gets in the movie. I don't even know the actress's name, but, man, she was yeah. a smoker. But I don't know. You could give us that car, and I don't think we'd get that girl. You know what I'm saying? I love the car. Pure chick magnet. <laughs> All right. I love your confidence, Steve. I love the Steve thinks if I had that car, I could get Elvis Presley results with that car. I love that confidence coming from Steve. Uh, Jeff is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, my car, I'd have to say, I remember it growing up as a child watching Nash Bridges, was the 70 Barracuda convertible. Yeah, yeah. Somebody somebody else mentioned that, too. And I, uh, did they ever explain, I asked the other gentleman, too, did they ever explain why he had that car? That was his car. I, I really don't understand why, but I know mm-hmm. it was a very rare car, and it was just, I always thought about that car. That was just a pretty car growing up. Yeah. Yeah, those were beautiful. Those were beautiful. Yeah, the other the other gentleman said it, the back story was that it had belonged to his brother, and it was like it had been in the family, and he was keeping the car in honor of his brother. So I was just curious. I, I didn't really get into that show, but I do remember that car. Uh, Gary is on KTSA. Hi, Gary. Hey there. Thanks, Jack. Uh, my choice would be, and I don't know the year or actually the make, but the uh, probably like a 50s Buick convertible that Vanacek drove in the TV series. The actor was George Pappard. It was a convertible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a race car, but it was nice. <laughs> Good old George Pappard. Yeah, I... You know, I think you can go back, and if I can mention Canon, you can certainly mention Vanacek, right? I mean, fair's fair. <laughs> We're well, we're, you know, we're leaving a lot of people behind you and I, Gary. But you and I know what we're talking yeah. about. Appreciate the call, thank you. Yeah, I I mean it was, it was crazy. It didn't matter what the show was. It didn't matter how incidental the car was. Um, as a kid, we would watch. I mean, it was already in reruns. I'm not that old. We would watch Andy Griffith's show, and um, they had those big, huge, like you know, block and a half long Ford Galaxies as the. Uh, as the Mayberry, uh, you know, squad car, so cool. Looked like you could land a plane on the trunk of that car, right? So big. Um, oh, Chris is calling in about the Munster coach. We got to get that in here before we run out of time. Yeah, we had another. Uh, somebody else mentioned the Munster car too, Chris. So you like that one? Yeah, I think it was a nineteen thirty three Plymouth with a V twelve. I'll yeah, take your word for that. Cool car back in the day, but no. you know that one. But if I could have the other one, it'd be the one Dale Senior, uh, the Daytona 500. Wish I can have that car when he was there you go. Daytona 500. There you go. Very nice. That's a good choice. Yeah, not really a TV show, but I hear what you're saying. Uh, definitely an iconic car, car that people associate with the driver. Um, we had a lot of a uh, lot of emails on these. I'll get to some of them tomorrow. We won't have time to get them all tonight. But if you want to send me an email, because we're going to run out of time here, want to send me an email. Uh, the question was, if you could have only one 
car or truck or vehicle from a movie or television show, what would it be? Uh, Jack at KTSA.com. Speaking of cars, Dodge is in the news tonight. The uh, car company has announced they've hired a guy to be their chief donut maker. For $150,000 a year, 32-year-old Preston Patterson from Charlotte, North Carolina, is the winner of Dodge's chief donut maker talent search. It has nothing to do with the donuts you eat. Uh, Out of a total of almost 200,000 applications, this is the guy they chose to be like a product ambassador. He's a car nut, and the donuts they're referring to are the kind you do while spinning the tires. So he will get 150 k a year, and he will get to drive brand-new Dodge muscle cars and make public appearances. Sounds awful. I feel sorry for him.